a standard electric bass has four strings. That's two fewer than a guitar, which has six strings, and they're obviously a lot bigger and they're tuned a lot lower so that you can play bass notes. You can get an electric bass with five strings or seven strings. There's a guy named Charlie Hunter who plays bass and guitar on an eight string guitar, but I don't know, man. Four seems like more than enough to me. I wonder what the horns think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played on four-string basses and five-string basses and maybe just one string on a seven-string bass. There's some mighty fine bass playing on this episode's song, and I'm excited to get into it. So find a comfortable spot, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I've been thinking a lot about learning music lately, partly because I've heard from listeners who have been asking for advice on, you know, private teachers and how to get started with an instrument, and also because I have been learning instruments myself. You know, I'm kind of always in a process, uh, in the process of learning an instrument. Lately, I've been practicing a lot of guitar, which has been really fun. And it's been a little while since I kind of really sat down with the guitar and practiced. There's a whole period there in the early 2000s where I spent a lot of years, you know, kind of getting my basic chops together. But then I didn't play for a little while and was kind of working on other things, other instruments, and now I'm kind of back on the guitar and I'm really practicing it. It's been really fun. And the thing that is wild to me is how much of a difference YouTube makes. There are so many guitar videos out there on YouTube. There are whole channels of people who, you know, teach guitar lessons. A lot of really good players just showing how they play stuff. And while I wouldn't say that YouTube is a substitute for a private teacher, you know, I've learned from a lot of different guitarists over the years and have enough basic technique from that that I can get a lot out of a YouTube video just by watching some really good player demonstrate something. But there's nothing, there's really no substitute for having someone sit down with you in the room. But with that said, it's still pretty amazing to just have a question about something. You know, I'm working on funk strumming right now. Okay, funk strumming patterns. How do I meet with my left hand? And I just look on YouTube and there are four or five videos about it. And if I have the time to watch them all, you know, sometimes there will be guys saying stuff that's not exactly right or like two things will be slightly in conflict. But eventually you watch a few people and you'll get a sense of what you're supposed to be doing because so much of this technique has been kind of agreed upon at this point. It's really great. And just seeing someone do it, you know, being able to watch so easily is incredible and just so, so different than when I was first learning music back when I was a kid. All right, so welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. I'm actually going to cut the sales pitch short. You guys know the basic drill, right? Leave reviews. That's really helpful. Back the show on Patreon. That's really, really helpful. Huge thank you to everyone who's been backing the show. That just It means a whole lot. You can find Whole and Half Note backers' names in the show notes, and I really just appreciate everyone who's backed the show for however long they're able to back it. It's just really great, and it lets me you know, kind of dedicate the amount of time that I want to dedicate to the show. But enough of that preamble stuff. Let's get into this song. Whoa, what was that? Did you hear that? It sounded like a piano to me, like a like someone just really getting it done on piano. It is, it is a piano. Wait, I think I know what this is. Let me just adjust the knobs and, and turn off the distance and... Oh yes, it's time for one of the greatest vocalists of all time to tell us what she thinks. You think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. Think, 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 
And let's us go back to when Aretha Franklin recorded one of her signature hits, 1968's Think, a total banger that happens to be my favorite Aretha Franklin song. But you know what? I actually think there's maybe room for us to do something a little bit different in this episode. I... <laughs> What's this now? This is... This is a different arrangement. Okay. Here we go. That's right. On this episode, we're going to be talking about not one, but two Aretha Franklin recordings of the same song. Her original 1968 version of Think, and then the 1980 version that she recorded with the all-star Blues Brothers band for that movie. I think it's going to be fun and hopefully interesting to look at these two very different recordings of the same sensational singer performing the same sensational song. song has so much forward momentum it's like a runaway locomotive there's kind of no there's no good place to fade out and start talking i mean i had to fade out there but especially that blues brothers version man once it gets cooking it is very difficult to turn the temperature down so i'm excited to get into this this is something i've thought about doing before i know this isn't quite the cover um cover song episode that a lot of people have requested don't worry i'm going to do that at some point where i talk about a song and its covers and you know kind of analyze it this way but it's a similar idea because lots of artists record multiple versions of their songs. But this version, especially that Blues Brothers version, I think is so interestingly different from the original, and I really, really like the original, and I really, really like the Blues Brothers version. And it's pretty cool to listen to just how they're recorded and how they were performed, the slight changes made to the arrangement, and the way that Aretha sings it a little bit differently, you know, 12 years down the road. So we're going to start with the original 1968 version, we'll just kind of break it down for the song itself, then move to the 1980 Blues Brothers version, and then kind of go back and forth between the two, and just compare and contrast. First up, some vital stats. Think was written by Aretha Franklin and her then-husband, Teddy White. It was released on her 1968 album, Aretha Now. And side note, she separated from Teddy White that same year and divorced him a year later. He was, by all accounts, an abusive, terrible husband, and Aretha deserved better. The Blues Brothers version, of course, was released with the movie The Blues Brothers, which is a ridiculous and very entertaining movie that you should watch if you haven't seen it. It came out in 1980. That version featured Aretha backed by the Blues Brothers band, which was a sort of all-star group of session soul and blues musicians, some members of the Saturday Night Live band, and of course, headed up by John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in the roles of Jake and Elwood Blues. So let's start at the very beginning with the 1968 version, and this tune begins with um, a piano solo that's over there in the right channel, and you may not know this, but the piano solo is actually played by Aretha Franklin, who's a really good piano player. That's actually something that I think a lot of people don't know. Um, Aretha rocked on the piano. There are some really cool live performances of her just at the piano, you know, wailing vocals, but also just crushing the piano. And she's playing piano on this track, so this tune actually begins with her on piano, not on vocals. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to 
love that intro for a couple of reasons. Part of it is just the energy that Aretha brings to the very beginning of the song, and really to a lot of songs, is remarkable. She's very good at just coming right in on it, and um, she does it right here on the piano. That first chord, it just has this kind of smacking quality. It, you know, it feels like she's bringing you to church because that's very much where she's coming from. And when you hear that first chord, she just comes down on it, and it sets up the groove for the rest of the song. You So this song begins right on the chorus, You Better Think, first line, and it's the name of the song, and it's, you know, Aretha giving us a command. So this is a very commanding beginning. Now, Think was released in 1968, which was a year after she released her iconic cover of Otis Redding's Respect. And I love how she begins both songs, really. Respect begins with such a wallop. What you want? What a confident way to begin a song, just right on it. She had that confidence, and that was such a big part of her sound. Uh, when Aretha died last year, Wesley Morris wrote this piece for the New York Times that I think is like an essential piece of Aretha Franklin reading. And at the very beginning, he talks about that opening line, and he writes, her what is a punch in the face. And he's totally right. It's such an aggressive first word. What you want? Just Bam! And I feel like that first piano note in Think, it feels really similar rhythmically. She hits it in much the same way. Right? What you want? Man, they're even at like the same tempo. Aretha singing, Aretha playing piano, they both work together. Okay, okay. Point is, Aretha knew how to begin a song. She started with strong energy. She would always come right at it. You know, no messing around with like long intros, setting things up. She was just all business, just got right down to it. In a similar vein, the original 1968 recording of Think is just under two minutes and 20 seconds long. Really short song. And they begin right on it and they start right on the chorus. You that's the chorus of the song. There are kind of four sections to this song. There's the chorus, there's the verse, much later in the song there's the bridge, and there's also a section that I think of as the build. You know, naming sections isn't that important, you can call them whatever you want, but the build section is my favorite part and kind of the essential linchpin of this song that really ties it together and makes it my favorite Aretha song. But, um, you know, there's the chorus first, they start with the chorus, you better think, think what you're trying to do to me, and right after that they go into the first verse. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go away on the so you know like 17 seconds of verse there really they just get right through it it's got a couple of really great aretha isms you know vocalisms we get the backup vocalists in and it keeps the same groove and the same chord progression as the chorus so they kind of merge together you know they're not super distinct to the chorus and the verse so the song is in b flat and it's really kind of just two chords it's like a b flat and then it goes to e flat and then there's kind of an e flat over f that works kind of like an f7 but it's really just she just plays e flat on the piano i'm pretty sure so it's just B-flat and E-flat. You know, the melody changes, what Aretha is singing changes, but that's pretty much the tune. It's very simple harmonically. So as to those Aretha Franklinisms, we get two in the middle of her second phrase. The first one sounds like this. And so that's that that trademark Aretha Franklin belt. She had a really, you know, she could belt super high. And she's just up there belting it out in her chest voice. I think that's an F5. She sings these notes. 
just, you know, really ferocious sounding. So on doctor, when she hits that high note, that's like an F5. That is no joke to just smack that note out like that. But then in her next phrase, she does a different Aretha Franklinism where she jumps up into her head voice, and which is also really effective. But it don't take too much time see what you're doing to me. You so there she jumps into her head voice through that Notice that when I jump into my head voice, it's an entire octave lower than when Aretha Franklin does it. So it's fun to listen for her. You know, she has great control of her voice and also a big, huge voice that can do a lot of different things. And she'll use these different textures and colors just to get a really playful sound. She's always doing something different. And it's really fun to kind of close listen to what she's choosing to do with a given phrase. So after that verse, they go into the second chorus. It's the same as the first chorus, pretty much. And then it's time for the build-up. Okay, so that's the linchpin of the entire song, that section. And I know that's a terrible place to stop it because that section is just as important for what comes after it as for what's in it. But I want to highlight what's in it first before we talk about what comes after it. So this build section is really important for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's the fact that it introduces the only chord in the song that isn't a one, four, or five, like that's been going around for the rest of the tune. You know, the bridge that happens later is just on the four chord. So those are those three really basic chords that are always in a blues tune. And suddenly you hear a D flat. It's that second chord in this build and it adds this sense of drama that immediately grabs your ear. Even if you're not sure what you're hearing, something different has happened and that is immediately evident. That's the chord and it just lets them resolve the phrase in a really satisfying way. The second thing that I love about this section is actually the lyrics and the way that the lyrics work with the arrangement and with the music. Now I say lyrics, but really I should just say lyric because it's just one word. It's the word freedom, which Aretha sings, and then the backup singers echo back to her. And she sings freedom, and it builds up as the chords build up to that minor third, to the fourth, and she keeps singing freedom, freedom over and over again, and the backup singers are right there with her. mighty, you know, and it can be read in so many clear ways. So the backup singers on this are the Sweet Inspirations, which, um, fun fact, Sissy Houston was in the Sweet Inspirations. That's Whitney Houston's mom. So Whitney Houston's mom is on this track. So for starters, you have the obvious power of five black women singing the word freedom over this mighty chord progression in 1968, you know, at the height of the civil rights movement. There's also the fact that Aretha co-wrote this with Teddy White, who was her abusive husband, who she was about to leave. And this song is her saying freedom, freedom over and over again in a song about about how a man needs to think about what he's doing to her. It rules so hard, and it's a prime example for me of how well lyrics and melody and music can work together when they're really used, you know, in concert like that. Music can exist independent of lyrics, right? You can have instrumental music, and lyrics can kind of exist independent of music if you just speak something out. It's a little more like poetry. And, you know, the two can kind of feel divorced from one another sometimes. You know, someone can be singing a melody over a song, but the lyrics aren't necessarily being reflected in the song. But in this section, when Aretha sings freedom, 
and she elevates and the chords move up and she sings it louder and louder and the chords and the backup singers get more and more intense. It's such an amazing build and if she weren't saying freedom and if the music weren't doing what it's doing, it wouldn't be as effective. Now this section is called the build and that's because it builds, you know, that minor third to the four. It really feels like it's going somewhere. The bass starts playing a kind of pedaling line. We're really going somewhere and the question is, where are we going? Where is the build going? And that's the ultimate punchline of this amazing section is that it is going somewhere surprising and cool. Check it out. So at the end of that section, they modulate the key and they go up a half step. So it was in B flat and now it's in B. So at the end of that big build section, they're just going up, going up. They end on that B flat chord and then just like, boom, up a half step. Everything is raised up and it gives the song this sense of forward momentum. You are no longer where you were. You're in a new key. After that build, we have come to a new place. love that guitar part. That's Jimmy Johnson kind of ringing in the new key. Uh, he was a guitar player in the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. He's a super celebrated guitarist. Actually, the whole rhythm section for this. Um, Jerry Gemmon on the bass, Roger Hawkins on the drums. Roger Hawkins was also in the Muscle Shoals band. These are like legendary sort of luminaries of soul and R&B music. And um, I love what Jimmy Johnson plays there, that little line. super good. So now that they're in B, there's just a new energy to the song. You know, it starts out in this kind of low groovy place, but it just picks things up when they go up a half step. It's partly that, you know, all the vocalists, including Aretha, are up a half step, so they're pushing their voices just a little bit more. You know, it's not dramatic, but they're pushing a little bit more. She's going a little bit higher on the high notes and everything just has that kind of extra sparkle of energy. But it's also just the new key. You know, you've been hearing the key of B flat for the first part of the song and now suddenly you're hearing the key of B. just sounds higher energy and a lot of it is due to the key. They've also made the arrangement more exciting. The backup vocalists are really still bringing it and they've got the horns in. You know, the horns came in during the build for the first time. They were in the background there. And then during this final verse, they come in. It's kind of just this one hit that they do, but that one hit just adds and it kind of, you know, elaborates the arrangement a little bit. It's just that one hit. And I'm not usually a less is more guy with horns. I tend to think that more is more with horns. But in that case, it just really works. It's this nice little button that they just add um, that just adds a nice little touch. So Aretha's still having a blast vocally on this last chorus. And this chorus is uh, actually sets up the last new section of the song, which is the bridge. Okay, is that a bridge? There isn't actually another verse or chorus after it. It just sort of happens and then they just vamp out and Aretha, you know, totally goes off and the backup vocalists get to do some cool stuff. Hey, 
but it's almost like a prelude to the end of the song. I call it a bridge because I think of the build section isn't really exactly the bridge. It's more of this like build up. This sounds like a traditional bridge. They just kind of place it near the end of the song, which is actually really interesting and kind of an unexpected place for it to be. Uh, they go to the four chord, so in this case they're up in B now, so the four chord is going to be an E, and they just kind of stay on a four chord for the whole bridge as she sings that line, you need me and I need you. The horns are on the bridge too, they're just playing kind of an E7 pad there in the background which adds, you know, a little more excitement to this bridge. And it's a nice change of pace that comes right before the end of the song. pretty much it for the tune, you know? Aretha and the band bring it home, the backup singers come on in, Aretha kind of goes off, and uh, the record just fades out. Of course, the song itself would not fade out, it would linger on, and 12 years later it would be time to record an all-new version of it with an all-new band. Brothers is as unlikely seeming a movie today as it was probably when it came out. This movie was directed by John Landis and is based on a Saturday Night Live skit starring John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as Jake and Elwood Blues, who are two blues musicians and they have a good band and they do blues music. Uh, both of those guys were big fans of blues, and as a result, the movie is this sort of extravaganza of like really elaborate car chases and also some of the greatest musical cameos in movie history. The plot is super thin. It's basically just Jake gets out of prison and he and Elwood go and put their band back together and their band happens to be actual musicians you know a lot of guys from Stax Records and that sort of scene people who played at the Saturday Night Live band and they go around and have these kind of funny scenes where they re-recruit everybody who's left their band after Jake got thrown in prison and part of the charm of the movie is that these musicians mostly are not actors and they're not very good at it but they're all legends in their own right so it's sort of really fun to watch these amazing musicians just sort of say their one or two lines for the movie in the course of the plot where most of what they do is just sit there and play their instruments. There are also a couple of sequences where very, very famous you know, singers turn up. Uh, Ray Charles is in this movie. Cab Calloway plays a part in this movie and then performs in the end. Actually, fun fact about Cab Calloway's character in this movie. His name is Curtis and that's because he's named for a Portland, Oregon uh, singer and harmonica player named Curtis Salgado, who's this blues legend. And uh, he's actually a guy that John Belushi saw when John Belushi was in Oregon making Animal House and sort of inspired the whole idea for the Blues Brothers. And a good friend of mine actually played drums with Curtis for quite a while. Uh, he's a he's a great singer, great harp player, and a, uh, a real character. So it's kind of cool, a little Portland connection with the Blues Brothers that um, I thought was really cool when I found that out. Go ahead, Curtis. Um, that's not the end of the cameos in the Blues Brothers. I mean, James Brown is in this movie for a sequence. Pretty amazing sequence. And, of course, probably my favorite cameo, my favorite part of the movie, is when Aretha Franklin turns up. Now, Matt Guitar Murphy, real guitar player, and Blue Lou Marini, really killer saxophone player, I've actually seen him live, are the two band members they're trying to track down, and they've both got jobs working at Aretha Franklin's diner. So Jake and Elwood sit down, and to announce themselves, they make weird orders, somewhat famously. Elwood orders... I'll have some toasted white bread, please. You want butter or jam on that toast, honey? No, ma'am. Dry. 
And then Jake orders... Bring me four fried chickens and a Coke. And of course, that's enough for Matt Murphy and Blue Lou Marini to recognize their former band leaders. We got two honkies out there dressed like Hasidic diamond merchants. Say what? They look like they're from the CIA or something. What they want to eat? The tall one wants white bread, toast, dry, with nothing on it. Elwood. And the other one wants four whole fried chickens and a Coke. And Jake, the blues brother. <laughs> it's a very silly scene. And I should say that to Aretha Franklin's credit, she's pretty good in this scene. Like, she's a good actor. Uh, a lot of the musicians in this movie are not good actors, but Aretha totally gets it done. So, of course, she does not want Matt Murphy to leave. They're married now. And so she tells him he better think about what he's doing. And that leads to the musical sequence in question when she, backed by the Blues Brothers band, reperforms her 1968 hit thing. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You <laughs> so it's a really fun scene. From there, they just perform that same version that's on the soundtrack for the movie. The intro is different. She just goes right into it like you heard. There isn't that kind of drawn-out intro, though I like the intro in the studio version. And the scene is really funny. You know, I won't get into it too much more just because this isn't a movie podcast. This is a music podcast. And I want to talk about the song and how it's kind of different and the different ways they, they approach the arrangement from the original. But it is a very funny sequence. You can actually just watch it on YouTube. I'll link it in the show notes. But it's cute. They're in a diner. The other diner patrons start dancing. The other singers are like the backup singers are sitting at the bar. One of the singers is actually Aretha Franklin's sister. Um, Lou Marini pulls out his alto sax that he was apparently keeping below the uh, below the fry station. And he winds up up on the bar playing an alto sax solo that we will definitely talk about um, in a moment. But anyways, it's a cute scene worth watching. But the recording itself, I think, is fascinating and really, really cool. So let's talk about that. So I want to highlight the differences between that 1980 Blues Brothers version and the original version. A lot of them are really obvious, but just for reference, uh, here's the first phrase of the first verse from the 1980 version. And here's that same sequence from the original. Okay, so the first and most obvious difference is the tempo, right? These The tunes are both still in B-flat, they're in the same key, but they sound so dramatically different because of the different tempo. Um, I count the original at about 109 beats per minute, and the Blues Brothers version is at 129 beats per minute. So it's 20 clicks faster, which is about 20% faster. That is a lot faster. And actually, um, I kind of followed it through the recording, and the Blues Brothers version picks up, and it gets to like 132 sort of by the end, so they even get going a little bit faster by the end, which is part of that kind of runaway train, breakneck feeling that that 1980 version has. So that's 129 beats a minute, a little bit over two per second, where if you go down to 109, it really just becomes way more of a laid back jam. So this is a really cool example of how big of a difference 20 clicks can make. You know, a click is is one beat per minute. So 20 clicks faster, 129 versus 109. And that can make a really, really big difference, not just in the feel of the song, you know, how long it takes to get through a phrase, um, where the vocalist has to breathe. You know, they can maybe go longer at a faster tempo, but they need to fit more words into shorter space so it can be more exhausting. There are all these little things that change as you change the time scale of the song. So one of the biggest things that changes is just 
the groove itself. When you add 20 clicks, the rhythm section is going to feel it a little bit differently. Um, on the original, the rhythm section is Roger Hawkins on drums and Jerry Jemmett on bass. Remember, uh, Roger Hawkins was a Muscle Shoals guy. They're kind of just tied into that whole house band studio scene from the 1960s. And in the Blues Brothers band, Duck Dunn is playing bass and Willie Hall is playing drums. Uh, Duck Dunn is a Stax Records guy, so he was like a Stax house band guy. Um, Steve Cropper, also in the Blues Brothers band, Stax guitar player. So it's sort of funny, actually. The original recording had a lot of Muscle Shoals players, and the Blues Brothers band had a bunch of Stax Records guys in it. So it's almost like this competition between these two legendary house outfits. Point is, they're both really good bands, but they played the groove a little bit differently because the tempo was so different. So let's listen to that groove, the original groove on the uh, 1968 record. This is at 109 clicks per minute. It has a more laid back bass line and a slightly different drum groove. So I worked out how to play that part, and the drum part kind of sounds like this. And then the bass part that goes along with it sounds like this. So together they get this kind of a groove. So it's kind of this groovy, you know, groovy feel. And Roger Hawkins plays something on drums pretty different than what Willie Hall plays in the faster version. He plays this like booms, dots, booms, ba-da, boom, booms, da. Because it's kind of slower and he has the space for that extra kick drum. Okay, so listen to the recording now and just focus on that. Try to especially just focus on that kick drum. Boom, ga, boom, ga, boom. Focus on the thump in the strong songs. Thump, pop, sizzle, breakdown. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on the way back when. Hear it? I didn't even know you. You couldn't have been too much more than Okay, so that's one version of the groove. Now listen to the faster version and listen, try to hear what the kick drum is doing and how the groove is different. So in addition to that spicier tempo, Willie Hall is just playing a different groove. He's playing steady eighth notes on the hi-hat. That's that sizzle. He's playing a steady backbeat on the snare drum. Pop, pop, pop. You know, that's that pop. And his thump is a little different. He's just playing boom, pop, thump, pop, boom, pop, thump, pop. He doesn't double up the kick drum at the end of the bar the way that Roger Hawkins did on the original, which would sound more like boom, pop, boom, pop, boom, boom. Boom. Because adding that level of subdivision at that faster tempo, I would imagine he chose not to do this because it would add a lot more subdivision and make it feel sort of, you know, m much more intense and sort of choppy. Uh, so the groove, as I worked it out, sounds like this. It's kind of a more open groove, right? Instead of boomed, dot, boomed, dot, boom, you just get boomed, dot, boomed, dot, boomed, dot. It just kind of pushes things forward, which then opens things up for Duck Dunn on the bass to do a little bit more. He gets to dig in a little bit more. Uh, his bass line sounds like this. This is me doing my, my best not great Duck Dunn impersonation. So that bass line, Duck Dunn's bass line, is just different in a bunch of little subtle ways from Jerry Jemmett's original bass line, um, but it all adds up and it combines with that bass groove to give a very different feel.
There's just a lot more kick in it, you know? The original kind of has a bounce, but the 1980 version just has this kick. It really pushes forward. And uh, it's largely because that groove is different, and that's largely because the tempo is different. So now listen for that. Listen for the bass line and the drum in the original, and then in the 1980 version. Here's the original 1968 version. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on, way back when. I didn't even know you, you couldn't have been too much more than tame. Boom. Okay, so that's one kind of groove. Now listen to the 1980 version and uh, listen to how it's different. It's all about the placement of the thump and the pop, and by making a less busy placement with a faster tempo, you get a significantly different groove. So the other clear difference is just in the overall production, the way that it's been recorded and mixed. Um, these two recordings could not be more different in the way that they were recorded and mixed. So the original 1968 version was definitely recorded in a more lo-fi way. There's a lot more room. The stereo pan is weird, which I never quite know um, who to attribute that to, because sometimes these recordings were released in mono and then later remixed to be stereo and a lot of stuff from the 60s you know they'll do stuff like is happening on this recording of think where in this case the drums and the piano are over in the right channel while the bass is over in the left which is just not a very modern sound um that sounds kind of old-fashioned i don't love it it sounds okay on a stereo but in headphones it can sound a little bit weird where a modern recording and the 1980s version is very much a modern recording the drums will always be in the center with the bass right in the center um you know almost always obviously there are exceptions but generally speaking the drums will be put right in the center with the bass to kind of drive the whole band. So listen for that. Just notice how the drums are over on the right here. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on, way back when. And then how the drums are in the center. You know, that snare drum is just smack right there in the center of the mix on that 1980 version. There's also, as I'm sure you heard, just a ton more clarity going on on the 1980s version. I mean, it just sounds like it was recorded in an entirely different kind of studio with a different kind of approach to the whole thing. The original version sounds really cool. It sounds much more like everyone was in a room together and they just mic'd the instruments. And when I said there's a lot of room, I mean, you can kind of hear the room. You can hear the space more. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on, way back when. Everything in the 1980s version feels close mic'd. It's all super well produced and carefully arranged. You can hear each individual instrument very clearly. And it's not actually a better sound. Like, I like it because it's cool to hear all the instruments, but the original has a definite vibe and a really cool sound to it, too. They're just very different, and it's kind of a nice illustration of those two different styles of um, recording. So another big difference is the arrangement, and as specifically the horns. I think that the horns in the Blues Brothers band, they had a really killer horn section, and the original horn section um, on the 1968 version of Think is also a really good horn section. You know, it's, again, it's muscle shoulder guys it's a bunch of you know old studio hands they're great players but they're not very close mic'd and they're kind of hard to hear which is part of the overall vibe and part of the sound but i do enjoy that on the blues brothers version you can very clearly hear the horns plus they've just added a couple more horn parts i mean that's evident from the very beginning of that studio version the horns just come in on this really tight riff at the beginning they double that ba -da -ba -ba -da, right with the snare and it's so killer it's such a great way to begin the tune like, just compare that super aggressive unison horn part, that super aggressive snare hit, that ultra-tight rhythm, to the way that they begin it, the much looser way that they begin it on the original 1968 version. You 
you know, each of these comparisons could be emblematic of the difference between the two. You can hear it now, right in the original. There's almost a little country in it. That kind of that bass line is a little more doom, ba doom, ba doom, ba doom, doom. It just feels a little more country, and that guitar part, a little bit country, and that's kind of cool. It's like this soul with a little touch of country, where the um, the 1980 version is much more of a sort of gospel, you know, bringing everybody to church kind of a vibe. So that hot in-your-face energy, I mean, the tune starts that hot and it just gets hotter. So by the time they get through, you know, through the chorus, through the verse, the band is just totally cooking. And then they get into that first build the Blues Brothers band does and things just go off. I mean, a lot of things are very, very different about that 1980 version. Uh, Listen to the 1980 build section. So the overall harmonic contours are the same. It's still going from B flat up to that D flat. That's where that magic D flat chord comes in to E flat back to B flat. It's still doing the build, but because of the faster tempo and the way they're playing it, um, things feel different. A lot of that comes down to what Willie Hall is playing on the drums. Notice he goes to this open hi-hat thing that's almost a disco beat. He's going like boom, stat, boom, stat. He's got the hi-hat open. Uh, Listen to the groove really quick and listen for that. Right, he's got that nice, just really tasty sock symbol opening up over there, which is very, very different from the original. Listen to the groove from the original. Pretty different, right? It's much heavier. He's just got that steady backbeat going, doom, doom, ta, doom, 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 chop. And it sounds more like Wilson Pickett or something. Like it's got this more just kind of rocking straight ahead feel. We're at that faster feel where you add that disco sock symbol. It uh, it really changes things up. Another difference you'll hear right there is that the horns are always doubling that line. They always play that, where in the original version, they don't. It's a small but a really cool addition to the arrangement. It gives the horn something extra to do, which, you know, I'm always in favor of. But also, I just think it really adds. It makes that line, which I really like that unison sort of descending minor pentatonic thing. Um, it makes that line really stand out. And it brings the horns up in a way that I think works super well. So, of course, it's time now to go to that key change, which introduces my favorite new element in this 1980 version. So, of course, this is where Lou Marini, who was kind of back doing dishes before in the movie, picks up his alto saxophone and kind of just wails out this note right on that key change into B. Um, It's such a great little uh, sort of cliched thing to have a saxophone wail on a note like that. But look, if you're going to ring in a key change as great as that key change and think, what better way to do it than with a nasty little alto sax riff? Come on, you knew I couldn't resist working it out and playing it. Actually, B is the key of A flat on alto saxophone, and I hate that key, but hey, Lou Marini does a pretty good job of it. Okay, so listen to the recording, listen for him. He's over there in the right channel. He just comes right in on that B right at the beginning, and uh, he's kind of over there just noodling around in the right channel for the rest of the track. Love that primal scream there when Aretha just screams out, hey. Hey! 
<laughs> I mean, there are very few singers who could make a sound like that, and that is a very Aretha Franklin sound. It actually kind of gets at something interesting, too, which is another major difference between the 1980 version of this song and the 1968 version, and that's the way that Aretha sings it. The original version is a lot more playful. She has more time to work with because the tempo's a little bit slower, and she's doing some more playful stuff with her voice. She jumps into her head voice, like I talked about before on that high B flat that she kind of, you know, whoo, she kind of lets that out. But it don't take too much time to see what you're doing She does that, uh, I think, three times in that recording. She jumps up into her head voice. On the Blues Brothers version, she never goes into her head voice, and she's entirely in her chest belt. You know, those screams, those really intense, you know, that much more intense chest voice up high, and she never jumps up into her head voice. Um, some of that is just because she chose to sing the song differently, I guess. It could be for a lot of reasons. Um, but part of it is there's this heat to her performance in the 1980 version, and a more of a playful, you know, a more of a playful approach to the 1968 version. And that could be because in the narrative of the movie, which she recorded it for you know she's angry she's mad at Matt Murphy because he's gonna leave and go back on the road with his band and she doesn't want him to and uh, in the movie it's actually really funny when she belts out that particular hey that kind of primal scream it's because he's turned away from her and she's like hey don't turn away from me and she kind of yells it out and he's like ah and he turns back around And it's this really funny little moment that um, lines up with, you know, the heat of the way that she's performing. She's bringing a lot more muscle to her high notes, and it kind of has that that different energy. Now, of course, that's not to say she's not having fun with the Blues Brothers version. I love how she delivers this line. So then it's time to go into that bridge, which means the return of the disco beat. You need me, and I need you. So that groove on the bridge is so different from the original. Willie Hall is playing that disco beat that he plays during the build-up section, and Duck Dunn on bass is playing notes on the upbeats, actually. So if the tempo is like boom, 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 he's playing boom, bum, 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 which gives it this total bounce, a very, very different feel than the original. Listen one more time and listen for those two elements. You need me, and I need so with that different groove in the bass and the drums, Aretha kind of bringing that extra heat to her performance. The horns were still in, playing that line. The whole thing just has so much more of an intensity to it than the original, which was just much more laid back and groovy. Uh, here's the bridge from the 1968 original. It still rocks, right? I mean, Aretha sounds great. The band sounds good. It just rocks in a slightly different way because that groove just has less of that pulse to it. It's slower. And also the way that they're playing, the things they're playing, you know, the bass player is just playing that kind of regular boom, boom, ba-doop-ba-doom, boom, where Duck Dunn is playing that uh, 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 those upbeats. There isn't that disco beat in the drums. So it just dramatically changes the entire energy of that section. You need me. Yeah, yeah. 
So if you remember, the bridge was in a kind of a weird place on the original because it, it feels like a bridge to me and it, you know, it's that four chord and then it goes back to, to the key of B that they're in because remember we've gone up a half step into B and then the song just kind of vamps out and ends. So it's like there's a bridge right before the ending of the song, which, you know, usually a bridge comes in between, you know, it like bridges you into the final chorus or something. There's something that happens after the bridge. This is just a bridge to the ending. However, in the Blues Brothers version, that is not the case because one of the biggest changes made to the Blues Brothers arrangement is that they actually keep going and there's a whole additional two sections to the song after that first bridge. Makes it work more like a bridge and it also makes the song into a little bit more of a journey. Remember, the original version was just under 2 minutes and 20 seconds long and that's at 109 beats a minute. But the Blues Brothers version is over 3 minutes long. It's like 3 minutes and 15 seconds long and that's 20 clicks faster. So there's quite a few more bars in that arrangement than there are in the original one. And the reason for that is that they do the build-up section one more time, which means they also do the modulation one more time. We're in B now, remember, but it's time to bring it up another half step. (laughs) Go ahead. Let's do it. Okay, so that's right. The Blues Brothers version has two key changes in it. It goes up two half steps. It starts in B flat, then they do that build section, then it goes to B, and then they do the build section again, and it goes up to C, and this one actually ends in C, which is completely different than the original. It lets Aretha really get up to the top of her range there and just totally wail. There's also, like I mentioned earlier, they pick up a few clicks. They get a little bit faster toward the end of this. They're like close to 131 here, I think, and uh, they kind of started at 128, 129. So they've just picked up a couple clicks, which is very very subtle and hard to hear, but it does make things feel even more energetic. I love so much that they do that build section twice in this arrangement. It really is just like someone said, how can we make a much more extra version of Think? And, you know, they correctly identified that the most exciting part of the song is when she sings Freedom with the backup singers and the band builds and does the whole thing. So they decided, why don't do it twice? We'll do it once in B flat going up to B. And then, hey, let's do it again once we're in B, going up to C. It's so good. I love when people aren't afraid to just embrace the best thing and do it even more. Like, obviously, restraint is good, too, but sometimes it's cool to just take the awesome thing and do even more of it. If you take this to its logical conclusion, you could see this song just keep modulating and it just keeps going up a half step over and over and over again until they do it 12 times and they're back in B flat but they're up an octave and Aretha Franklin has gone supersonic and nobody can even hear what they're doing but it's so awesome that nobody cares. Of course that's not what they do they just stay in C they bring the song out in C they do another verse it's actually the same verse that Aretha sang earlier so she didn't write new lyrics for the song she just kind of reprises the verse which is totally fine and then they do the bridge again but they do it in C and it has even more of an unhinged energy this time because they're a little bit faster they're up yet another half step and uh, things are just really kind of about to kind of go out of control you From there, they begin that same vamp, you know, just kind of vamps on C while Aretha freestyles and and the backup singers have her back. Jeez, Aretha, man. Um, You can also hear Duck Dunn is kind of, he's he's letting loose on the bass a little bit. He starts this kind of cool walking bass line playing quarter notes. Doom, 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 doom. 
and then it's time for one more change because instead of fading out, they give the song an actual ending. Now I am always a fan of a strong ending. I don't like fade outs really. And I'm guessing, I don't know if this is true, but it's possible that that's just how Aretha always ended it live because you can't really do a live fade. There are bands that try to fade out live, but it doesn't really work. It leaves the audience feeling kind of weird as the band gets quiet. So you do want to have an ending for every song. And I like that they recorded that ending, though even with that forceful ending and that extra key change, it is not enough to convince Matt Murphy and Lou Marini not to leave with the Blues Brothers and answer the call of the road and leave Aretha Franklin and her diner down two very important staff members. There is nothing like that song for me, though. I love Aretha Franklin singing. I love all of her albums. Everything I've ever heard by her is amazing. And Think has a special place in my heart. It's partly because I still remember the first time I heard it when I was a kid and watched the Blues Brothers. Um, It knocked me out then. Listening to the original knocks me out, too. I love the way the original sounds, the vibe, the groove of it. That band is so good. I love the Blues Brothers band version. I love how tight it is and how they bring the horns up and add all that extra energy. And more than anything, I love that build. The groove changes, the chords change, and Aretha Franklin sings freedom over and over again. That'll do it for my analysis of Think by Aretha Franklin, an amazing song by a titan of music. She changed the world of singing and the world of music forever, and it's just not the same without her. If you like strong songs, there are so many things you can do to help out. The most obvious one is you can become a patron on Patreon. Uh, There's a link for that in the show notes, and that is a really helpful thing you can do. You can leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. That also helps. Or you can spread the word and just tell people about the show. That's been a really great way that the show has been spread and I really appreciate everyone who's told their friends. No new outro solos for this episode. I'm going to replay the solo from Galen Clark, the Portland-based keyboard organist who's a really great player and plays in Trio Subtonic up here in town. So stick around for Galen, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. <laughs>